to see it, friends. You're listening to Fast Forward Radio on the Blog Talk Radio Network. Fast Forward Radio is an audio production of the Speculist blog. You can find us online at speculist.com. Or if you're feeling kind of feisty and you, want to mind, uh, you don't mind typing four more characters in a dot, you can uh, go straight to the blog at blog.speculist.com. Anyway, on the blog and here on Fast Forward Radio, we talk about the future. We talk about emerging technologies. We talk about emerging possibilities. We talk about what we think is going to be a very bright future that's coming a lot sooner than most of us expect and that we think we'll all want to live to see. Normally, my name is Phil Bowermaster, but tonight, since uh, tomorrow's St. Patrick's Day, I think I'm going to go with something like Patty O'Bowermaster, something like that <laughs> might, might work. And uh, with me, as always, is my co-host, co-futurist, and co-blogger, Seamus Fitzgordon. <laughs> better known on this side of the pond is Stephen Gordon. <laughs> How are you, Phil? Well, uh, top of the evening, as we say here in our Irish program. I'm great. How are you? Oh, man, doing doing real good. Uh, uh, you said uh, if you're feeling feisty, well, that, I think that applies to so many of our readers. So, you know, I think we do have some feisty readers. Uh, yeah. The listeners have not been typically as feisty. Uh, every now and then, something gets going in the uh, in the chat room, and and for that reason, we do have our our buddy Michael Darling, uh, who we're going to be calling MD this evening for reasons that will become uh, apparent, uh, monitoring the chat room and will be telling us uh, about any interesting discussions or, or questions that uh, that come up there. But we're looking for a little bit of. You know, a little bit of feistiness maybe from the uh, from the audience tonight. Although not craziness, we did have that one uh, that one crazy call. That <laughs> that was actually funny too, though. I mean, well, that was you know once that was funny. I yeah, know. yeah, it'd get old if we had more than one a show. But uh, <laughs> anyway, right, I yeah. think it'd get old if we had more than one ever. But uh, that's probably uh, <laughs> that's probably asking for too much. So. Any uh, anything interesting happening with you this week? Any any interesting news developments to report? Or well, I mean, um, I, not much to say except uh, I've started working out again. And uh, how's that going? Well, great actually. Um, it's just uh, it, it was one of those things where I felt like I just had to do it. You know, it's I, sitting on my I've, I've got a job that I sit on my rear. Uh, most of my hobbies I enjoy doing are you know things like podcasting and, and blogging and and so i just you know i i, I can't be completely sedentary so um for purposes of my health and just uh general well-being i started working out and uh enjoying it quite a bit so excellent idea what do you do what what's your uh what's your workout regimen consist of well body for life uh oh, really I highly recommend body for life uh it's it's both diet and exercise and uh um nothing really you know you know nothing really all that uh, you know earth shattering about the book, but it's uh, I, I, it seems to be that it's working it's it's working pretty good and uh, I've known a lot, I've known other people who've used it uh, and, and it worked well for them so yeah that's uh, that's what I'm using outstanding well I uh, as as readers of the longtime readers of the blog know uh, have have a uh, workout that I developed myself using a sledgehammer. That, uh, that that I continue to do works works pretty well for me, and uh, I do like to supplement that though with trips to the rec center and having just moved, uh, I wasn't on the program last night. And uh, thanks to you and to, to PJ Manny for uh, for providing I, I thought a really outstanding program last week. Uh, so, so good that I thought about taking another week off actually. Uh, after, <laughs> PJ week. is awesome, and it's good to have uh, people that can fill in if if one or if ever both of us are out. I think that we've got some folks that would. It could help out and keep the show going. That's good. Absolutely. Well, she should also think about doing her own podcast. Although I hate to say that because then we might lose her as a uh, you know stand-in person on this show. So forget that idea, PJ. If you're listening, just forget that idea. Yeah, just, just be, you know, too, too just fill in for us. But what I was going to say was uh, I just moved, and so today I went and checked out the new rec center because I do this other you know I, I'll do some cardio and I'll do some weights and things in addition to my to my normal sledgehammer workout, and I found that. Like the new rec center, this one was just built, and the other one is like one the, the one we moved from the neighborhood. It was one of the older ones in, in Highlands Ranch. And it's like all the equipment has been deprecated. You know, the, everything I was used to using, they don't have anymore because they've got like more high-tech versions of it. I mean, except for things like the Smith machine. You know, they, they still have, you know, dumbbells are still the same. But everything else is like, I don't know how to do any of this. It's like I, 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 have, I have to be reoriented on that. On, on, on how to work out, but well, uh, you, uh, you know, you can't really do much different with weights. Are you talking about like Nautilus equipment? 
that's different? Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Okay. A, a lot of those are different, and all the cardio machines are different too. I, you know, if, if if all you're used to working with before were you know kettlebells or whatever. You know, <laughs> well, that's actually it's a, it's a good reason to do things like run and lift weights. Yeah. Because they can't really change that all that. That's much. right. You just you just do it. If if you do the you learn a few you learn a few things and then you keep doing it. So. Exactly. Well, we have a very exciting program this evening, and uh, we'll be bringing our guest out momentarily. But uh, before we do, um, I thought it might be appropriate for us to venture into the world of the unexplained, uh, as we have so often in the past, with a little feature that we like to call... Now, I've got a great uh, tale of the paranormal for, for us this evening. This, this is provided by a speculative listener in uh, Kentucky who, uh, who sent me this link. And uh, this, uh, I, I was really hoping that I could spin this into a complete St. Patrick's Day thing. If I could say this is a leprechaun, it would be perfect. But in fact, the headline is, Creepy Gnome Terrorizes Town. Okay, Gnome. And there's a picture here of the gnome, and actually there's a video of the gnome walking down the street. And I tell you, it looks a lot like, I mean, he, he's kind of grayed out and he's hard to see, but you can tell he's got uh, a pointy hat um, and a beard, and uh, he's very short. And he looks a lot like the Travelocity gnome. Okay, you know, the, yeah, you're, you're, you're familiar with him? Oh, yeah. So, so here's the story. Okay, this is from, uh, this is from The Sun online. Uh, A town in South America is living in fear after several sightings of a creepy gnome that locals claim stalks the streets at night. The midget, uh, I'm sorry, that's what it said there, the little person, midget is actually not a very polite term, uh, which wears a pointy hat and has a distinctive sideways walk, was caught on video last week by a terrified group of youngsters. Now, we'll be sure and show, uh, provide a link back to the video in in the show notes uh, for for our listeners who want to see this gnome in action. But uh, teenager Jose Alvarez, who filmed the gnome, yesterday told national newspaper El Tribuno that they caught the creature while larking, uh, I, I assume caught on camera, I don't think they actually caught it, while larking about in their hometown of uh, General Guemes in the province of Salta, Argentina. He said, we were chatting about our last fishing trip. It was one in the morning. I began to film a bit with my mobile phone while the others were chatting and joking. Suddenly we heard something, a weird noise as if someone was throwing stones. We looked to one side and saw that the grass was moving. To begin with, we thought it was a dog, but then we saw this gnome-like figure begin to emerge, and we were really afraid. Jose added that other locals had come forward to say that they had spotted the gnome. He said, and this is where it gets very serious, this is no joke. We are still afraid to go out, just like everyone else in the neighborhood now. (laughs) One of my friends was so scared after seeing that thing that we had to take him to the hospital. Now... Okay, there's a couple of things I want to comment about this story. First off, the video evidence, obviously clear and unambiguous and definite proof that gnomes exist. Okay, okay. okay. Um, and, you know, just just based on the story, it would appear that they're able to create some kind of fear. They, they emanate fear or something like that because, you know, he's just a cute little guy. And, <laughs> and yet this town is completely ter- – and one kid in the hospital from looking at this gnome. So unlike – you know, you, you've got the luck of the Irish. This is this is the bad luck of the Argentinians. I'm afraid they've got uh, they got gnomes down there, and those gnomes are pretty scary. Well, I wonder if this is just a little person dressed with a pointy hat. Uh, I wonder. Um, you, know. <laughs> you know, making funny faces and scaring the kids. Well, okay, but then how do you account for the terror? I, I guess would be would be my response to that. You know, a little know. guy in a beard, but you've got a town terrorized. All right. Plus, uh, when you see the pictures, I think you'll agree that this is no ordinary little person. This is, uh, well, it's kind of hard to tell, but it looks like he's got, like, big bug eyes or something. Um, and, and, and definitely a big, like, handlebar mustache. So I, I don't, I don't, all I'm Well, that would is, do it. The handlebar yeah. mustache is <laughs> the coup de grace. <laughs> he, he, looks, he looks like the guy on, uh, a little bit like the guy on, uh, oh, what's the show called? Uh, Orange County Chopper, right? The, the, oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, the, the big of that guy. Yeah, but, but a, a shrunk down version of that guy, huh? Yeah, with a very pointy hat. So you, you can see where people might be a little afraid of that for sure. Okay. Well, moving quickly on to our, uh, unless you had any other thoughts or comments on the. Uh... No, I've I've got a good friend that keeps wanting me to uh, bring a, a Bigfoot researcher um, <laughs> on the show, and I keep telling him, you know, you realize that when we do the tales of the paranormal, that 
we're usually making fun of that stuff. <laughs> what do you mean making fun? Of? Hey, we, we, <laughs> we like to, uh, we, you know, we, we like to be nice to our guests, and so if we have somebody on, I would hate to spend an hour making fun of somebody. Yeah, I don't think we're going to have a big uh, researcher on the, on the program. Uh, doubt I it. I think that would be too much of a good thing. The Tales of the Paranormal is a short feature. I, yeah. I, I don't think we want to do a full hour of that. Uh, actually, that show is on. Uh, weeknights. It's called Coast to Coast. And, there you go. Uh, people can catch that. Now, this this next one is is just really going to freak you out, okay? And I don't know if you saw this. Uh, I actually picked this one up myself off Dig Science, which just cracks me up that this was on Dig Science. But uh, the headline is, Asparagus Tipped to Tell Future. A Worcester woman, uh, this is from BBC News, a Worcester woman has been trying out her tips for predicting the future using asparagus. Jemima Packington describes herself as the only asparomancer in the UK and makes her predictions from the way the stalks fall on the floor. She's been she may be the only asparomancer in the world. <laughs> you know, she might well be. I, I, I think that's an excellent point. She might be selling herself short there when she says she's the only one in the UK. Uh, she, she's been making predictions to visitors at the British Trade and Travel Fair at the uh, NEC, don't know what that is, near Birmingham. Among her visitors was actor Tony Robinson, who played Baldrick in the BBC comedy series Black Adder. So, uh, any Black Adder fans, how about that? There's Baldrick uh, getting, uh, and they've actually got a picture. We'll provide a link. Uh, Baldrick getting his uh, future fortune told to him by way of asparagus. Uh, she says, I can't even remember what prediction I made when I was young, but my family went very quiet, and it came true, and the rest is history, she told BBC News. Uh, apparently, she had, uh, at a young age, some asparagus had been dropped. She looked at the stalks, and suddenly she had a revelation of uh, what was going to happen. She made the prediction, and she's been doing it ever since. And uh, I just want to point out that absolutely coincidentally, I, I had nothing to do with the menu, but I did have a, a plate of asparagus uh, for dinner just about an hour before starting the broadcast here this evening. So, Well, I predict we're going to have a great show on that. I think my insights into the future might be even more keen than normal. <laughs> Okay, based on based on the power of asparagus here as it's uh, presented in the story. So that one got my attention. We'll provide uh, we'll provide links to both those. Have you ever heard of anything like that? People telling the future with asparagus? Well, no, but I, I tell you, it's it's a very common thing in the history of the world that people use random things to you know make non-random predictions. You know, uh, entrails. That's uh, right. looking in, looking into a crystal ball. I mean, they're you know trying to pull patterns out of you know out of randomness to uh, to, um, to predict the future is is probably one of the most common things to you know rolling the dice. I mean, it's 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 all kind of the same, isn't it? Sure. And and you think about things like uh, uh, yeah, throwing bones, looking at bones or entrails. Uh, certainly, asparagus is a lot less gross than either of those. So uh, yeah. no no animal has to die. So she's got that going for her. Shows her holding several stalks, and I wonder uh, how frequently she burns through those. You know, I mean, if she gets a fresh batch of asparagus, is that going to give you know, is that going to provide her the future for like the day, or you know? I think she's selling uh, cauliflower short. I really do. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, next time you get a call, a head of cauliflower, take it, chop it up, throw the pieces down, and uh, see what you come up. Go, go write something on the speculus. (laughs) I sure will. We'll see if uh, we'll see if it doesn't, you know, uh, come true, right? I mean, that's the that's the trick here. Okay, well, so so those are our uh, th- those are our two pieces. We'll wrap that up and say that does it for this edition of. I'm always trying to catch you, but uh, you were actually pretty quick on the button that time. So <laughs> sorry about that. Uh, no, you were pretty. Qu- you were pretty quick. I'm not, okay. okay. I'm not going to say anything. That was. Uh, I, I, you know, uh, let's face it. We've seen worse. <laughs> no doubt. Okay, so let's bring out our guest. Uh, we're we're really pleased to have our guest with us this, this evening. It's uh, Michael Anisimov. Michael writes and speaks on futurist issues, uh, especially the relationships between accelerating change, nanotechnology, existential risk, transhumanism, and the singularity. Uh, he has a very popular blog called Accelerating Future. We link to it quite frequently. I read it all the time uh, that discusses these issues. Uh, Michael is a member of the Board of Directors of the World Transhumanist Association and is the North American Fundraising Director for the Lifeboat Foundation, in addition to other uh, many other interesting activities that uh, he's involved with. So we're very pleased to have you. Michael, uh, Michael welcome to Fast Forward Radio. Hey, Phil. How are you? Even <laughs> Good. Delightful, in fact. 
Well, good. Well, we've we've been wanting to have you on for some time, so I'm I'm glad that we finally got to work this out. In fact, you were one of the first speculist interviews that uh, that we ever did way back in what would that have been like 2003? I'm thinking something like that. Yeah, and that uh, was actually indirectly responsible for me getting quoted in the Singularities Near by Ray Kurzweil because he picked up on that interview and lifted a few lines out of it for his book. Is that right? Yeah. So, but no mention of me. No, unfortunately That's not. Too bad. So, I mean, basically, the speculus got quoted in the singularity is near, and I, I'm excited about that. That's yeah, yeah. No, that's very cool. That's very cool. Um, so, yeah. Okay. Well, we were glad. To, you know, we're glad to provide that opportunity for you. Who knows what will happen after this uh, live audio interview tonight? That this could, you know, Hollywood could come calling or something tonight. <laughs> this, this, this could be absolutely huge. Well, we. But there won't be any mention of Phil. <laughs> that, that's, that's fine. We'll be the springboard of, for for Michael. So as long as there's some mention of Seamus, I think we'll be okay. <laughs> so we're, we're going to be we're going to be talking with uh, Michael, and in our second half, we'll uh, be opening up the lines for your calls. You you can reach us at this is Fast Forward Radio on the Blog Talk Radio Network, and you can reach us at three four seven two one five eight nine seven two. So Michael, uh, we thought we would just get into some of the topics that you've been covering on Accelerating Future late, uh, here, here in the last couple of weeks, and uh, this is just going to be kind of an unstructured, fun dialogue. We don't have any burning issues that we want to get into, and of course, if you have burning issues that you'd like to talk about, uh, you know, consider this your forum uh, to, All right. to bring those up. But um, one thing that uh, caught my attention today was uh, the article about um, the, today is uh, an important anniversary uh, anniversary of a the death of a rather significant literary figure. Tell us about that. Oh, it was uh, the Ides of March yesterday. It was the 71st anniversary of the death of the famous horror writer H.P. Lovecraft. And uh, I've been a fan of Lovecraft for about maybe since I was a teen, and I just usually I'm not really into um, horror stories or fiction in general, but I really love Lovecraft, <laughs> no pun intended. And um, I like the way that he mixes together kind of science-y stuff with um, forbidden, mystical, uh, far-out civilizations, aliens, that sort of thing. And he does it like, in a believable way. So, And the, the concepts that he comes up with, I just have to encourage people to read it on their own. And some of his stories are just a couple pages, so you can you know check it out easily. But uh, I've always been really impressed by him, and yeah, I'm not really into fiction in general that much. But I'm really into Lovecraft, so I had to uh, do a little tribute on my blog for that. A little, little tribute to Lovecraft. Well, I have read a little bit. It's been a number of years ago since I've read any Lovecraft, and I was I, I got really interested after reading uh, your your piece on him on your blog, and um, did a little reading up on him. And uh, I was really interested to see how um, science fiction-y his work actually was. It, I had read it years ago, and it didn't occur to me that that's what it was. I, I felt like I was reading, you know, a horror story, and, and that the, right. the, these, these odd beings in it were some kind of supernatural beings. But in fact, in his cosmology, in, in the universe that he created, these, these gods that, that, that are referred to are actually, I guess, what we would refer to as aliens. Yeah, it's not like a mystical. It has more of a somewhat of a rational and like modernist basis to it. So um, the the literary movement or and or philosophy that uh, that Lovecraft introduced is some is introduced is something called cosmicism. Is, am I pronouncing that correctly? Yeah. In fact, I didn't even know much about it until I, I knew like Lovecraft's general philosophies and ideas. I didn't even know that it had a formal name until I looked them up on. Wikipedia in preparation for doing this post. So I'm new. I'm familiar with it because I've read lots of his uh, works. Oh, okay. You, you didn't know that it went by that name either. Okay. So no, I didn't. But but w w without without necessarily then referencing the name, what can you tell us about Lovecraft's philosophy? What what they're what they're referring to on Wikipedia is cosmicism. What what's the basic idea there? Well, the idea is it's somewhat existentialist, like the idea that humans are alone in a vast uncaring, godless universe, and um, kind of then we're being like kind of a chess piece in a larger game among these elder gods. For instance, 
he likes to talk about how humanity is just like a blink of an eye, and he refers to civilizations that are hundreds of millions of years old and have had like epic wars and created structures dozens of times larger and more fantastic than anything we've created. And kind of, it's interesting the way he um, sort of belittle. He's comfortable with belittling humans, and I think that's really interesting. And it's not quite in sync with transhumanism because transhumanism has a better. Um, opinion of humans, but it's true that Lovecraft had a hard life and didn't seem to go very well. He didn't even achieve fame during his lifetime, so he was a pretty bitter guy. And uh, the way that he expresses his bitterness is very philosophically interesting because he crafts these uh, fantastic stories and civilizations, and it just makes you, it's kind of like when you realize how large the universe is for the first time. You know, you realize that we're just on this little, basically a second utter blackness, and uh, it's kind of like that existential horror that I think is a lot more sophisticated than, oh, there's a guy with a knife chasing us, you know? Right. Well, uh, of course, uh, a guy with a knife chasing you is existentially terrifying if you're the person being chased by the knife. But it's, right. Yeah, we, we, we've actually gotten into that uh, discussion of uh, existential risk at the, uh, at the individual versus the group versus the, versus the cosmic level. And this is, uh, this is uh, existential uh, angst, I guess, at the cosmic level. This, yeah. is, a, this is a universe that doesn't need us, um, that, that doesn't particularly want us. And uh, that's got better things to do than than bother with us, basically. Is, is well, and yeah, yeah. I guess his his uh, works were scary in the way that the Twilight Zone was sometimes scary, um, mm-hmm. or maybe Tales from the Dark Side or things like that. It's it usually it would end up, uh, if I if I understand correctly, it would end up with uh, like the the character getting a glimpse of reality that was yeah. instead of being. Uh, you know, something like, uh, you, you know, you open up your eyes and you have this, you know, a Nirvana type experience. It'd be the exact mirror image of that. It'd be, it'd, it'd be a hellish vision of what reality really is. And so, I'm sure that the Twilight Zone writers were probably inspired by Lovecraft. In fact, yeah, I'm sure that's no, true. No doubt. Well, and, and I'm trying to think. It, it, it might have been. Uh, Twilight Zone, or it may have been uh, Rod Serling's later series, Night Gallery, I believe actually did some Lovecraft material. I think there were some Lovecraft stories that were that, that were included in in one of his one of his two series, Night Gallery, not generally viewed as his best work. But uh, mm-hmm. if if there was Lovecraft stuff in there, they were they were at least drawing from from some uh, from some high quality material. So yeah, I'm actually I'm not really afraid of seeing any Lovecraft movies because I haven't seen it yet. And I don't want them to ruin it. Right. Yeah. Well, because I would think the fear is that you would lose the whole, um, you would lose the whole angst, the the whole I'm scared of this aloneness in the universe message. To ouch, there's a scary, powerful being coming after me, right? Which is exactly, yeah. Which which is not really where the where the horror derives from. So so let's talk about. how does that philosophy stack up against uh, against transhumanism? I mean, are, are there actually similar threads? Are there similar themes between those two things? Or why would a transhumanist uh, find that particularly uh, entertaining or or edifying to uh, uh, to read something like that? I think there are definitely parallels, and I didn't even really begin to think about them too much until I really started to get deeper into Lovecraft. I just started reading them for fun initially, but then I realized there were quite a few parallels. For instance, transhumanists aren't afraid to say that human beings aren't the greatest thing on the block. Like it seems as if human culture and history has a kind of what I would consider to be a pathology of um, over-worshipping human beings. I mean, humans are great. We're the only known form of intelligence in the universe. We make candy and <laughs> roller coasters and all sorts of fun stuff. We open Walgreens, right? Uh, yeah, we open Walgreens. <laughs> we uh, work out. You know, there's so much that's great about humans, but uh, I think it's kind of conceited to think that that's the whole picture, for instance. And I think that this is something that anyone that speculated on aliens should consider. Unfortunately, lots of fiction about aliens, like Star Trek, uh, the aliens are remarkably humanoid, so I still think that when you watch Star Trek, it doesn't like bust you out of that box of human centrism. But Lovecraft, he's so relentless in the way that he does it, and his bitterness really comes through that it makes you say, hey, you know, maybe humans aren't that amazing. Like maybe there are civilizations out there that could, you know, 
beat us down a hundred times over, or something like that. So that's one aspect of it. And then the other aspect of it, which is interesting, is that Lovecraft sees science as opening up this new, practically infinite world of possible ideas, technologies, many of which could be risky. So, like for instance, in one story, a uh, scientist, it's called From Beyond, a uh, scientist creates a machine that can open up a portal to another world, and uh, in the end, he gets trapped in the world. So it's not like, I don't think that anyone's going to create a portal, but it's interesting, analogous, how we are creating these technologies, like we're on the verge of creating uh, synthetic life, for instance, where we don't really know exactly what's happening. And I kind of see that it's maybe something beyond what we're, we're used to, what we're accustomed to, and we have to be very careful as we, I think we should be tiptoeing into some of these uh, dangerous technological realms, and uh, that's like the spirit that Lovecraft gives to me. Yeah, so, uh, you know, the, with the things you do, the, 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 uh, the, the two functions that I mentioned in the intro for you, you know, you're on the board uh, for the World Transhumanist so- Association, and you're also uh, involved with, with Lifeboat Foundation. So, it's, you know, you kind of wear two different hats out there in the, in the transhumanist world, one maybe focusing more on uh, the uh, positive developments, positive outcomes, uh, directions, and that sort of thing, and one, and one focusing on the risks. Do you think that the Lovecraft-type material appeals more to that hat, to the, to, to the uh, uh, Lifeboat Foundation uh, yeah. approach, well, where, you, where you're looking at, at potential risks and downsides? And, and, right. You know, well, I'm what, what's scary of... about all this? <laughs> Part of what my object is, is to introduce this um, caution of risks into the transhumanist community as a whole. I want to become a staple part of transhumanism. And I think that it already has, it's not, yeah, actually it already is, because um, existential risk is given a lot of attention in the uh, WTA Frequently Asked Questions document, for instance, and uh, transhumanists have taken the forefront of analyzing uh, new risks and coming up with possible responses to these risks. And I think that to be balanced and also to avoid being criticized for having a rosy scenario outlook on the future, transhumanists need to take the lead in analyzing the risks instead of just the benefits. And it's easy to get carried away with just the benefits. For instance, I think that uh, the early Kurzweil books put a little bit too much emphasis on the benefits, not enough on the risks. But luckily, in more recent books like Singularity is Near, he started to acknowledge the risks. And, uh, for instance, he came out with the uh, New York Times op-ed that cautioned against releasing the uh, genome of the 1918 flu virus on the Internet. So I've seen, like, there's motion in that direction by Ray Kurzweil. There's motion in that direction by a lot of transhumanists. And uh, I think that it's too easy just to get caught up in, like, this kind of masturbatory futurist glitziness and not say, hey, you know, we're not invincible. You know, I kind of think about a um, 16-year-old getting in a sports car for the first time. We're like, yay, we, you know, we have the internet, all this power, but uh, we need to be responsible with it or we're going to be screwed. And I think that uh, my two hats are compatible with each other on that score. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting, uh, the, the, the distinction between, say, um the Age of Spiritual Machines and, and the Singularity is near two, two uh, Kurzweil, Kurzweil books. I think uh, he had one in between those that was more on life extension, but those two were thematically on the same thing. And you're right, the, the, the second book in that series, if you will, uh, focuses much more on the risk. One of the things that uh, Kurzweil does that I think is, is very effective is he has these imaginary dialogues between himself and in the first book, uh, just some characters he's created. But in... in um, the singularity is near. He also uh, adds the voice of actual historical figures and and real current people into these uh, into these dialogues. So you'll have Ned Ludd uh, and the Unabomber talking with uh, Ray Kurzweil and, and and Bill Joy, and it's a great dialogue. I wonder if uh, if there's room perhaps for um, H.P. Lovecraft to, to to join that join that dialogue. Maybe, maybe not. It seems like not that many people are familiar with him, so maybe not. I'm not sure. Yeah, that might, might, that might be that might be stretching it. Well, one one of the things I thought was that um, uh, 
another another potential parallel is that, um, in effect, the characters in that universe are up against uh, unfriendly AI, in a sense. That they are up against these very powerful beings who uh, how did they come how did they come by that power? Well, maybe they're post singularity uh, beings, right? Uh, who have no interest in humanity whatsoever. This is a very plausible future for this planet. Should should, should artificial intelligence take off in in one particular direction versus another? Totally, totally. Yeah, you're just now that we're having this show, you're actually making me think about like new connections between the two. It's completely true. Cool. Well, this is Fast Forward Radio on the Blog Talk Radio Network. Phil Bowermaster and Stephen Gordon were talking with Michael Anisimov about uh, various philosophical aspects related to transhumanism. And we're opening up the phone lines now. If you have a question for Michael or would like to talk with us about any of the topics we're talking about this evening, uh, particularly if you can read uh, the future from any vegetable, including asparagus, give us a call at 347-215-8972. Well, uh, Phil, a little piece of trivia. Uh, The Singularity uh, is near as probably, it's the third book, so it's sort of a trilogy. Uh, Age of Intelligent Machines was back in the late 80s and the 90s, and now um, The Singularity is near. You're right. Yeah, that that first book, of course, that's before my time, so. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Phil is just a kid. Yeah. Luckily, we got you older folks to remind us of that. Uh, if only it were true. Uh, okay, so uh, let's 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 move on to um, another ism versus uh, trans, transhumanism, which uh, I didn't know how to describe it. So I'm going to give it a really a really bad, ugly, nasty name, uh, Michael, and then and then you can correct me and give it a and give it a better name. But uh, I, I was reading your analysis of uh, Dale Carrico's essay about what all transhumanists believe and what's wrong with what they believe, and you kind of took him down point by point. Um, and, and so I called that uh, transhumanism versus buzzkillism. Um, <laughs> is, is that a fair assessment of uh, of that philosophy, or, or, or would, would that better be described as something else? No, I don't think that you could characterize Dale's um, criticism so one-dimensionally. I mean, like, I like buzzkilling sometimes, because I think some people get a little too enthusiastic for no real reason. Um, I, yeah, I don't know about, uh, I mean, anyone that wants to read Dale's blog can um, find all of his positions, so, you know, they can Google that, but I just don't want to, uh, I don't want to, like, be joshed into saying anything negative about the guy. <laughs> so, I mean, he has his concerns, he thinks, I think that lots of his criticisms of transhumanism are completely legitimate, but also I think that he has made somewhat of a slight obsession of criticizing transhumanism, and it doesn't even seem to be helping his own causes. Um, Like, he's a big socialist activist, essentially, or he kind of puts himself out as one, but the way he constantly criticizes transhumanism means that he's alienated from his own group, socialist activists, because most of them don't really know or care what transhumanism is, and he's obviously alienating himself from transhumanists by um, attacking them so consistently. And I think that a lot of the reason why he's attacked transhumanism is because of his perception that transhumanism is closely allied with libertarian uh, philosophies, which is, it's true that extropianism did grow out of... Um, libertarian politics, and there were a lot of libertarians in extropianism, but that was the mid-90s, so it's kind of like the transhumanist movement has become politically more diverse in recent years, and uh, I think a survey showed that about 47% of transhumanists identify themselves as left-wing, so I don't think that the original reason why he started attacking transhumanism is still the same, and uh, I think he almost sees any people on the left as betraying other leftists if they even like get, enter into organizations with um, libertarians or right-wing people. And I think that's just like divisive and polarizing, and I'm tired of seeing our country ripped in half by polarized politics, and I don't want to see the transhumanist community be ripped in half just because of politics either. Uh, well, that's an excellent point. Yeah, I, I, one, one of the reasons that we don't uh, 
that we don't ever get into the specifics of politics on the speculus is for exactly that reason, because it always turns into this argument and everyone's making the other side out to be the bad guy. And, 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 there, and there's, there's, there's this kind of finger pointing and vilifying around the whole, uh, around the whole political process. I think that's really interesting. The, the, the history of um, how extropianism did in fact kind of arise out of a, a libertarian philosophy. And obviously there's still a lot of, uh, libertarian type thinking in the transhumanist movement, but uh, you know we uh, we had James Hughes on from uh, the World Transhumanist Association. When was that, Stephen? Earlier this year? or Was that late last year? It was. Uh, I think that was late last year, wasn't it? Late, late last year, and uh, you, you know the, the the kinds of issues politically that that are being addressed by folks who are concerned about uh, transhumanism or or who who. Uh, who, who take that philosophical approach? You know, it, it runs the gamut. It would seem to me anymore. The, 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 there's definitely um, there's definitely room. It, it's, it's a the word he used to describe uh, most of the people who are involved in his uh, group. I didn't particularly care for. He, he called them techno progressives, which would leave out the the libertarian uh, folks. You know, so I mean, it's it's hard to it's hard to come up with a label, isn't it? Well, I'm not sure that it would leave them out, though. I've, uh, maybe a techno progressive is different from a uh, just plain progressive. See, so uh, yeah, it, but but that is the da- that is the danger of labels. Um, but 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 I thought it, I thought it was really interesting um, that uh, the, the the title of Dale's post this time around because I read his I read his blog frequently and I and uh, the 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 buzzkillism is was 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 intended. Uh, uh, humorously, I'm, I'm actually uh, a fairly regular reader of his. Have swapped emails with him in the past, and he, he's uh, let me know when uh, things we've written uh, on the speculist have uh, have just been outrageous uh, in, in in terms of his political point of view. But um, the, the the title of his post was "Transhumanists Believe It Is Bad to Be Sick or to Suffer If This Can Be Avoided." And I've never um, known anyone who who didn't want to avoid sickness. <laughs> I, could could we train could could we could we That's a big tent there. Human beings believe it is bad to be sick or to suffer. If well, that that was actually his point. Like that's why he says that transhumanism doesn't offer anything new because it's already common knowledge, but I disagree with him that it really is so standard because um you know, most people think it's normal for old people to be afflicted by diseases for instance, uh, more normal than for a young person. And transhumanists don't make that, um, don't use that double standard. So, yeah, I mean, he's basically saying there's nothing new that transhumanism offers. But I completely disagree. Absolutely. Well, I, I, that, thanks for that clarification. I think I think that that helps that helps quite a bit. So he was saying that that's the obvious. That he was saying yeah. what I was just saying, which is everyone would right. agree that uh, that that uh, nobody wants to to be sick or to suffer. But this is one of the things we've talked about in the past when we get into uh, the subject of life extension. Um, there there seems to be this thought that well, yeah, we want people not to not to suffer and not to die, but uh, of course people do need to die, right? There's this. This, this other side of the uh, this other side of the argument that says that uh, that it is necessary. So so uh, what was your what was your response to that? How, how did you uh, how did you respond to what uh, what Dale wrote? Uh, well, it's there on the blog, but um, let's see. Oh, I responded to it point by point. I basically responded in the way I just said, which is that um, everyone claims to be against sickness, death, etc., but you'll find, you know, lots of excuses um, when it comes to uh, certain things, for instance, uh, I don't know, like saying that God took someone away or something when they get die in a car crash when they're young, um, or uh, it's, it's, you know, uh, people get numb to all this suffering, and uh, the difference with transhumanists is that we don't have any artificial limits, and the piece I would recommend is on this topic is Transhumanism as Simplified Humanism by uh, Eliezer Yudkowsky, which uh, elucidates the points um, that th- this point really, really well. So. Okay. Uh, and that was uh, Transhumanism as Simplified Humanism. Yeah, and that's the way I've always looked at it, really. And uh, actually, Stephen, that goes to that goes to one of your points about uh, transhumanism, right? 
Yeah, that basically, uh, in order to be a transhumanist, you have to be a humanist first. There's, you know, there's not going to be uh, too many fundamentalists. Uh, pick your religion. There's not going to be fundamentalists that are going to, you know, um, sign up necessarily uh, for transhumanism uh, unless I don't know their faith or whatever allows them to be a humanist first. Um, it's that's you know I, I just uh, see that as like a, a prerequisite. And I like the individual the is important. I mean, if you don't believe that, if you don't if you don't accept that, then you you can't you can't take the next step. I, I like the idea that uh, that that transhumanism would be not a um, some weird offshoot or extension, but is actually just just humanism. Which uh, is is that the is that the, the gist of what uh, what Eliezer argues in his essay? Yeah. And um, I think that it's important for people outside of transhumanism to also recognize that it's related to humanism because you'll need to understand that sometimes when you bring up the idea of um, like enhancing humans, it immediately harkens back to the uh, Nazis and their eugenics projects. And we have to make it utterly clear that transhumanism is based on humanism first. So that also means that transhumanists would completely defend the right of anyone to not modify themselves as well as modify themselves. Like, even though we have a lot of enthusiasm for the possibilities of modification, it doesn't mean that we consider it to be mandatory. It just means that we ourselves find it an interesting prospect and want to pursue it, and um, we don't want to force anyone else into following our route if they don't want to, and also that everyone has a responsibility both socially and legally to coexist with each other. I wrote uh, a short story that was published on the spec list a while back. It, it's, it's not particularly good. I don't, I don't know if I've ever been able to write, write good fiction just yet, but uh, it was basically it was Leon Cass's family uh, uh, you know, uh, giving him life extension treatments against his will. <laughs> What's it called? Um, I'll have to, I, you know, it's been, it's been, uh, when did, when did I publish that? It would have been about 2005, so I, I forget the name of, no, that the name might of the be back on the, uh, back on speculus.com rather than, yeah, I might have, I'd, but I'll put it in the show notes if I can find it, but it's, uh, I'll Google of that. Yeah. And, uh, I, I think that, uh, I, I guess the point is that, you know, exactly what you just said that, you know, if someone doesn't want whatever, you know, uh, technology can provide, then the transhumanist would be the first person to say, you know, hey, you don't have to have it. Right. So uh, one one point that Dale raised, that swarms of multipurpose programmable nanobots will soon make every everybody who counts rich beyond the dreams of avarice. Well, uh, to me, the big disagreement was that uh, it, it's not about making everyone who counts rich beyond the dreams of avarice, but that the, 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 the one, one of the great goals of... Uh, of, of nanotechnology, um, uh, molecular nanotechnology, as it's been advocated by uh, Foresight Nanotech and, and 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 other groups who 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 look ahead to to what that future might bring, um, is that it could have a a, a substantially uh, positive effect impact on uh, helping to eliminate hunger, helping to eliminate poverty, and 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 you would think that. Uh, that whether one was a techno progressive or a progressive or wh- whatever one's political viewpoint is, that that would sound like an awfully good thing to do. But I was I was interested in your response to him because uh, because you you didn't take the political angle, but you came back and said that uh, you don't think that uh, swarms of nanobots will be used in the in the near term. Um, tell us tell us why that why that's the case. All right. Well, uh, initially when Drexler started presenting his ideas kind of made it seem as if uh, nanotechnology would consist of a bunch of swarm bots flying around. And um, since then, we've, or they, I guess, I'm not, I'm on the technical angle of it, but um, they've just determined that it would be a hell of a lot easier to basically create a nanofactory, which is where everything is stapled down in place, because uh, the amount of infrastructure you need to make a bot fly is pretty significant. That's like a lot of wasted space. Uh, a nanofactory can be sealed in a vacuum. Uh, a nanofactory can be um, bought and sold and authenticated and regulated, which is also really important. And um, the idea of nanobots flying around, it's 
I mean, I think that nano factories will build small swarm bots, um, basically like insect bots, which we already have today, actually, but we'll just see them in greater numbers and more effective. But um, I don't think that we'll actually use swarms of bots to construct things. It's too complicated. It's unnecessary. And uh, it's the fact that it can't be regulated so easily is a big reason for why it probably won't come about in the near term. Um, you'd have to have some way of like, figuring out, how, keeping a tabs on every single one. So until we figure out how to do that and also overcome the technical problems, uh, I just don't think we're going to see nanobots flying around. Okay, well that's really bumming me out, but you're, but you're but you're not uh, you're, you're not eliminating uh, utility fog altogether here. As well. No, no, it's different. Utility fog wouldn't construct something nanotechnologically itself. It would be a product of nanotechnology instead. Okay, that's so once you created those swarm bots, that might be one of the applications of a swarm bot. Yeah, I mean, I mean, there will be swarm bots, but not. Uh, I doubt that they will be involved in manufacturing at least at least initially. Okay, so, so, but the utility fog does show up eventually. That's that's the point. <laughs> yeah, most likely. Okay, okay, because I'm really counting on that stuff. I got a I got a lot of big plans for utility fog in the future. And, and just uh, one more remark on the uh, nanotech helping people. Um, I was especially I was kind of offended because the reason why I initially became interested in nanotechnology was because of the humanitarian angle, and I think that uh, third world countries have the most to gain by creating a decentralized method of manufacturing. Because today, manufacturing is extremely centralized and makes it difficult to get uh, the products that people need to them. So uh, basically, Dale's kind of insinuating that all the support of nanotechnology has to do with greed. But that's not the case at all, as uh, you mentioned. Foresight Institute and Center for Responsible Nanotechnology make a bigger deal about the humanitarian applications than uh, making rich people richer. Yeah, well, hold, hold that thought. We're going to come back to that. This is Fast Forward Radio on the Blog Talk Radio Network, and the phone lines are open. We're talking with Michael Anisimov. If you have a question for Michael, please give us a call, 347-215-8972. And I'd also turn it around to MD right now and ask whether we have any questions uh, for Michael coming from the chat room. Well, <clears throat> the one question that uh, I think I posted that would be um, of general utilitarian value in any conversation uh, such as this is uh, something posted by a, a, a name I'm not even going to try to butcher and pronounce. Um, but he said, what would be the sequence of events that would occur moments after the singularity? Uh, perhaps begging the question, you know, how would we know when, we've, when singularity has occurred? All right. Uh, well, it depends on what way the singularity happens. Uh, if we're, my definition of singularity just means creating a smarter than human intelligence through any means. Um, for instance, brain computer interfacing, artificial intelligence, so on. Uh, and if, so it depends on what it is. If it's, we're talking about human intelligence enhancement, it might even be someone who takes a certain combination of smart drugs that pushes them way above the human, greatest human geniuses. And in that case, it might not be so extreme. It might uh, kind of be similar to plopping a human in the middle of a group of Neanderthals. Like, uh, it could even be really slow. You call that a slow takeoff. Uh, on the other hand, if you're talking about an artificial intelligence that has access to some sort of um, rapid infrastructure, like it can build uh, new computing devices for itself, then I think we could see a really fast takeoff where um, it could be really fast, <laughs> like almost instantaneous, like um, extending to a million times human processing capacity over the course of days or weeks or less. I mean, the key thing about the singularity is we don't really know what a smarter than human intelligence would do. So it's kind of silly for us to say that we would know exactly what would happen. But I think that uh, we have to not be so skeptical because that's what some people tend to do. They imagine it. They think of smarter than human intelligence they saw in, on some TV show, and they say, oh, well, it would do this, this, that. And um, we can't 
say it because it's completely unpredictable. So I think um, how would we know? Uh, I think we'll, if we, it's not obvious, then I don't consider it to be real, <laughs> to be obvious. Um, is it possible, following up, following up to that question, is it possible that, uh, that the singularity has occurred, that there is a greater than human intelligence at work right now in the world somewhere, and because we haven't seen uh, its output or we haven't seen evidence of it, that, that we, we just wouldn't know? Is, is, is that something that could happen, that the singularity could occur, and we might not know about it for some time after using, using the definition that, uh, that, that you use? Yeah, it is possible. For instance, if a, well, it depends on, I don't think, it depends on what the motivations of the uh, smarter than human intelligence are. Um, I think that even if it had any type of interesting motivation, like um, making the world a better place or even making the world a worse place, then it would probably, we'd probably start to see the effects of its plans or his or her plans, because it could be a human, um, relatively quickly. But uh, I think, hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's unlikely because any project that could um, create a smarter than human intelligence would probably cost upwards of tens of millions of dollars. So unless it were a secret military project, I think that also the intermediate steps to transhuman intelligence would be lauded as scientific achievements. And we all know how badly scientists want funding, so I'm sure that they'd trumpet their advances. Absolutely. If that was, in fact, their, their intent or their stated intent, or they had so much money, and I'm thinking Google here, um, that they don't really need to go begging for funding. They, they can sort of pick and choose what they want to do and just do it. But to get back to intent, if, if the, uh, oh, let's take Google. If, if the Google Plex, such as it is, um, was aiming at just creating better search and better repository of, of scannable and and electronic data, and yet in so doing created something that by any other practical definition would be some sort of uh, uh, AI, they might not, it might not be their goal, and so they might not trumpet it. A, they don't need the funding, and B, they're not, they're not, they're not aiming for that. That's not, you know, they're not trying to win the World Series. They're just trying to do something else, and oh, what do you know? It just, it happens. I doubt that because um, artificial intelligence will be really difficult to put together, and I don't think that it will be done by accident. I don't think, for instance, that someone would accidentally invent the nuclear bomb while trying to build a better conventional bomb. So it's possible, but in my opinion, in the opinion of many other people in AI, uh, it's not too likely. So you don't see the uh, the the, uh, and I don't want to say likelihood, but the sort of path of emergence where lots of different things going on together and AI emerges without really that being the stated goal. No, I think it makes a good sci-fi story, but not particularly realistic in the real world. Um, Michael, do you think that um, the more likely um, path to the singularity at this point would be human enhancement? Because it seems to me that, you know, um, just like you say, just the right drugs would make a, a, a human more intelligent. That's an easier route to go at this moment in time than uh, building a uh, than building the AI. Mm, you know, I'm not sure, but I don't think that's necessarily the case because uh, biology is really complicated, and our brains are already highly optimized by evolution. So uh, it could be relatively difficult. Like the brain. Depend, every part of the brain uh, depends on every other part of the brain working essentially normally. Mm-hmm. And I think once you start to mess around with things, biology is insanely complex. And if it were really that easy to make drugs that made people smarter, then we'd already have them by now. Yeah. And um, all the nootropics, uh, these so-called smart drugs, not a single study that I've seen has been published that proves that these actually make people smarter. So I think it's quite a challenge. Meanwhile, for AI... Um, it might be possible to use relatively simple um, algorithms that are, um, or, you know, actually probably not simple, but inference algorithms which are a hell of a lot simpler than human intelligence. So kind of like in the same way that uh, the, an airplane is a lot simpler than a sparrow. So I think that um, 
the AI is plausible, the AI roots plausible, and the human intelligence enhancement roots also plausible. The other barrier to human intelligence enhancement is I think that a lot of the approaches that would be likely to actually work, like um, deep brain stimulation and interfaces between the deep brain and uh, computers would be ethically questionable. And I think that they'd be shut down if they were in any uh, developed country. Well, you think a couple of possibilities here that come to my mind. One is that I think people might have this idea that somehow you could create a greater than human intelligence and contain it somehow. It seemed like maybe MD was sort of getting at that a little bit, that Google's got a greater than human intelligence sitting in a lab someplace. But but it would be a very difficult thing to contain, particularly if it were a – uh, particularly for machine intelligence, because it operates so much faster than we do, and also just the fact that it's smarter than we are. And how ultimately are you going to contain something that that is that is smarter than we are? So it seems to me that getting back to the original question of how would you know when it would happen? Well, it, it seems to me that a greater than human intelligence is probably going to find a way to um, to announce itself to us. Is, do you think that's a fair uh, a fair guess? Probably. I mean, if you think about how easy it is even for a smart person to fool a person of average intelligence, then clearly someone or some entity way beyond the human level would be able to fool human beings pretty easily. And I don't think that hopefully it won't want to, you know, because it will be on our side. So that hopefully that won't come into play. But, you know, it's really hard to tell. For instance, if a greater than human intelligence might come into existence and want to keep itself secret for a while while it devises more powerful intelligence enhancement techniques or strategies. Uh, maybe if it stayed under the radar for a while, it would have uh, more likelihood of uh, achieving its goals without attracting unwanted attention. So it's true that it could be a uh, secret initially. Or it could be not particularly interested in us, and it stays secret just because it's not interested in announcing itself to us, and then we only find out about it when it starts tearing the structure of our universe down and <laughs> something else. Lovecraftian. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Exactly. Well, one, one of the one of the follow up questions uh, on the chat room I see is uh, I'm seeing it in, uh, as uh, AI instead of humans with good drugs. All of a sudden, the robots uh, start building better robots. Although uh, one doesn't necessarily preclude the other, does it? It could be that the uh, the, the humans with good drugs build the initial uh, robot that, uh, that, that builds the better robot, right? Yeah, I'm actually worried that um, maybe humans just inherently aren't smart enough to build friendly AI. So we might need a leg up with primitive intelligence enhancement techniques, and then those enhanced human beings could create a friendly AI more reliably. Because especially if we have only one chance to do this, it would be nice not to mess it up and kill ourselves. (laughs) Well, we we had on the program uh, last week uh, Ben Gertzel, a big AI AI researcher, and uh, uh, it's it's a huge concern of his. And uh, he's what he wants to do is he, he says that humans have a capacity for empathy. Uh, but that um, but that evolution, you know, gave us the capacity for empathy, particularly within our own tribes. Um, yeah. If if there was another tribe with which we were at war, we would we could easily turn off empathy and go to war with them. Um, and he, he says that that uh, a goal of AI ought to be to create uh, to create something that has uh, a greater power of empathy than humans do and therefore would be would tend to be friendly. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, you might call that a kinder than human intelligence. Exactly. And it seems like a good way to go if you're going to build a machine like that. Well, that's obviously that's what we that's what we're all hoping for. I I've been uh, saying uh, lately after uh, the, the more I learn about financial markets, it feels like if 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 anyone's working on the uh, robots, they're going to build better robots. It's these uh it's, it's these quants who are designing uh, algorithms that uh, ultimately are going to be uh, limited AI programs, but that are that are designed to build more intelligent uh uh, algorithms that are designed to, to to develop even more intelligent algorithms to, to 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 get an edge in to get an edge in trading and and you think well how uh, how much empathy would a uh, would an AI that developed from 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 that particular tribe uh, have have for uh, for humanity or even for uh, even for another AI uh, you know at that point uh, yeah, they're, they're cutthroat 
yeah, if it came from that. Uh, yeah, that I direction. often use that example actually, like a stock market trading AI, unlikely. Uh, I, I one guy I talked to was um, about a year ago was the um, it was the founder of Hanson Robotics. Uh, he recently, or he's about to come out with a new personal robot called uh, Zeno, I believe it's, it is, and um, he says that. Uh, if we build AIs in such a way that they come from toys and entertainment things that are designed to interact with humans, then we would have, be in a way better situation than if, for instance, the military came out with them. And I've been thinking about it, and it's, it is possible, but I don't think that um, there'll be a serious project to create AI used for entertainment because it's easy to entertain people with something a lot smart, a lot, lot less smart than human intelligence. I think that. Um, you'd have people create crafting uh, artificial general intelligence for something more serious like uh, stock market trading or uh, military purposes. So I want to believe that it's likely that AI will come in a toy for, form first, but I just don't think it's too plausible. Well, definitely the upside there is that if, if a toy works right, it brings pleasure, right? It, 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 the, the whole idea behind entertainment or, or toys would be to bring happiness to, to human beings. Right. So it's, 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 it's starting off on the right foot as opposed to, uh, you know, if, if a weapon works right, it kills people, right? <laughs> so if, yeah. if, you, if you come from that orientation, I mean, it's, it's already sort of starting off on the wrong, uh, uh, on a very dangerous footing. I, would I think it kind of depends on whether you're designing the Teddy Ruxpin or Chucky. <laughs> yeah. Well, hopefully nobody's designing Chuck. Yeah, I hope not. Uh, but you know, people are designing uh, first-person shooters with uh, some pretty good AI. Um, you know, Halo and things like that. So I mean, um, mm. that would not be the best place to. Uh, and I'm not talking about AGI, artificial right. general intelligence. But there's there's AI in those in those uh, systems, and and you and, and it's exactly the same thing. Basically, uh, you know, for exactly the same reason, you would not want. Uh, the first AGI to come from Halo, uh, as you would it coming from the military. But it seems like the military um, might be the best bet at this moment, though. Yeah, it does seem likely. They have a lot of resources. Uh, one blog that uh, comes to mind when you uh, mention the game AI is a relatively new blog. That actually, I might as well plug on this program. It's called AI Panic. And it's written by a... Um, someone who works on game AI. And so there's a few interesting insights in there. Um, he says, in a recent post, he mentioned that um, they, he looked at all the uh, up-to-date game AI, and it's not nothing near, it doesn't even use neural nets, for instance. It's not nothing near the stuff that's been worked on in academia. So um, I don't think we. it's too likely that AI from games, but um, maybe low-level AI in games, for instance, the stuff that Ben Gristle's working on, like the Second Life, uh, uh, artificial pets and that sort of thing, could have a substantial impact on the road up to the singularity. Well, I wonder if something like uh, Ben's uh, parrot that he was that he was talking about last week. We had the we had the question come up whether whether it would pass the Turing test, and, and Ben gave that profound answer: No, a parrot can't pass the Turing test. But if if, <laughs> if, if you have a uh, if if you have this distributed parrot uh, out over um, uh, you know, if, if everybody in an environment like uh, World of Warcraft or uh, or Second Life has has this parrot, and they're all learning language, and somewhere that's you know there's there's one over parrot who's, who's, who's you know who, who's kind of learning learning the whole thing. Something similar to the model that MD was talking about earlier starts to become uh, possible. It's, it's not emergent in the sense of the Internet wakes up, or back in the 60s they said the phone system wakes up, but it would be designed to incrementally, uh, bit by bit, maybe uh, have have all these different little bits of understanding merge into one one greater understanding. Do you, do you think do you think there's a path that that, that makes that, that could be coherent to AGI along along those kinds of lines? Uh, I think that um, virtual worlds are an ideal training ground for AGI because of the sensory richness and the environment and human interaction and stuff like that, but it wouldn't happen without a lot of deliberate work. I think that maybe like a tag team of the virtual world pet approach and um, actual mathematicians working on the structure of AGI could uh, 
actually result in AGI. And that's exactly the approach that Ben is taking, which is why I think that uh, everyone should keep a really close eye on Nova Mente because uh, it could be going places real fast. Absolutely. Yeah, so uh, we're, we're looking forward to seeing developments from that. I've just been alerted to the fact that uh, we've gone over our hour. I was uh, meaning to look down at the clock to see if uh, if it was time to start wrapping up, and I realized that we've uh, we've actually gone over. It just uh, speaks well for you, Michael, how interesting it is uh, talking to you and uh, how we're, go we're, we're going to need to have you on the program again uh, very soon, hopefully uh Hopefully we'll uh, we'll schedule uh, something in the in the very near future. Any uh, any parting thoughts for us before we uh, before we wrap up? Hmm. Well, uh, my parting thought would be to encourage people to take a look at the Lifeboat Foundation. And I am the fundraising director for the Lifeboat Foundation, so I encourage people to consider donating. It's uh, lifeboat.com. And um, anyone that's concerned about the risks of advanced technology should. Uh, it's something you can do. In, in, it's not just sitting there. It's donating to an organization that's exclusively focused on dealing with it. So great. I encourage so, everyone to do that. So if you want to be involved in these kinds of issues, that's a that's a great place to start. And we will be providing links to uh, to Lifeboat Foundation as well as World Transhumanist Association on on the speculus. For those of you who are listening, uh, go to our show notes and uh, you can uh, you can follow the link there and do make a make a donation to Lifeboat Foundation. Well, Michael, thank you very much for being with us this evening. Thanks, Phil. All right, Stephen, so what's uh, what's our music going to be? Did you decide on what's going to send us out tonight? Leah Marie. I guess it'll have to be. <laughs> uh, Leah Marie's uh, World of Wonders is going to be our song this evening. Okay, well, we'll listen to World of Wonders. I just want to thank uh, everyone who, who uh, listened this evening. Uh, special thanks to Matt and Harvey in the uh, chat room. Harvey, by the way, was the... Uh, was the source of our gnome story, so appreciate uh, appreciate his questions this evening and uh, and and getting us started on on the gnome discussion this evening. And uh, thank you, Stephen, and thanks, MD. Look forward to uh, being with you all again on the next Fast Forward Radio. <laughs>